Hello and welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm Aviva Rumani, the Chief Corporate Development Officer here at LionTree. Today, we're very honored to have a dear friend, Lisa Borders, with us. Lisa's a dynamic leader who's served in a variety of key roles, paving the way for women across the board. She served as the president of the WNBA and vice president of community affairs at Coca-Cola. She was also the president of the Grady Health Foundation, as well as the city council president and vice mayor of the city of Atlanta. Lisa was the first CEO of Time's Up, a nonprofit that raises money to support victims of sexual harassment. And now she's channeling her extensive experience into her newest venture, Golden Glow Media. Lisa, welcome to Kindred Cast, and thank you so much for being with us today. We're extremely excited to discuss the evolving landscape of women's sports, which is a sector that Lion Tree and our clients are deeply passionate about and involved with. We're proud to support the growth of leagues like the WNBA, the National Women's Soccer League, and many more as we continue to strive for gender parity within the sports industry. Given the exciting summer we've just had as it relates to women in sports, we're looking forward to getting your perspective on how that sector is growing, among many other topics. Wow. So first and foremost, Aviva, let me start with gratitude and thank you and Lion Tree for inviting me to engage on the Kindred Cast. I am so excited to be on this podcast with you. So thank you. Let's Absolutely. just start there. Our pleasure. And thank you for running down my bio like my mom would be so happy. <laughs> you've done a few things. You've been a few places, walked in some stilettos that others may not have had a chance to walk in yet, so I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. In terms of women's sports and women's spending power, this, in my view, is a pivotal moment. It's a fork in the road. Yeah. Whereas women have always been equivalent to their male peers, there has not always been that recognition. We've not always walked alongside our male peers. We've often been perceived to walk behind and not been equal to. We're not asking to be greater than. But I think what this summer and the most recent events, whether you're talking about the new billion-dollar franchise with Barbie, whether you're talking about the women's Spanish football team winning FIBA, whatever Mm -hmm. you're talking about, the WNBA and the Aces, I would say this is a moment for women. The zeitgeist is in our orbit right now. And this is a moment of reckoning, I think, even for women who were not quite sure where our place was in the world. Mm -hmm. And now all the events are pointing to it's time to shine. Mm -hmm. Ladies, let's go. Nice. I love that. It's a sector that we're spending a lot of time with here at the firm And I want to ask you, who is a woman sports fan? Because I think the brands, media, the vision of what a women sports fan has evolved, because you're not only just targeting women, young women, young girls, but you're now targeting essentially the full scope of who's watching sports. So how do you think brands have evolved, private equity, investment dollars? How do you see that shifting as the sort of audience has now grown dramatically? I mean, one of the stats was 2 million fans attended the Women's World Cup matches. There were over 2 billion TV viewers collectively. Those are really big numbers that we're now seeing. 
And there were 92,000 fans, I think, that watched the women's volleyball game recently in Nebraska, mm-hmm. was it? Exactly. Um, so what I would tell you is that historically, men's sports has been the epicenter of sports, whether you're talking about t-ball or whether you're talking about college sports or professional. And with the advent of Title IX, women had the opportunity in college. We continue to have this opportunity. It was before my time. I graduated in 79, so it really hadn't gotten a lot of traction because it started in the early 70s. Title IX was an education bill. The sports piece was an add-on. People don't really realize that. When they say Title IX, they often think, oh, it was all about women's sports. That's not true. But it did offer us this opportunity to step onto the field of play. Basketball, volleyball, you name it, in collegiate sports. The way I think it's evolved is there's a recognition that men are not the only ones that play sports. And if you look at the studies by Ernst & Young and many others, they tell you that women learn amazing things playing sports. Our self-image is built up and confidence is built when you play sports. If women understood that your self-image would improve, that your confidence levels would be raised, and that CEOs and women in the C-suite across multiple continents have one thing in common. They all played at some level of sport. Mm. So what I would say is if we understood the science behind it and the data behind it, there would be more women playing sports. There would also be more companies, more brands, more private equity organizations who would be investing in women. But just like studies at places like NIH, men are doing the research, men study Men. So when women understand what the value proposition is for sports and what the benefits are to an individual woman or women as a collective, then I think you have this mindset shift that says we're going to invest more, that women should be considered an asset, not an afterthought. Mm -hmm. So if you invest in your asset, your hope is that it will accrue and become more positive, right? We're already positive, in case y'all didn't know, right? right? So I would say that brands are coming to the recognition that women are not only an asset, but something that they need to fully embrace to enhance who they are, Mm -hmm. right? I worked at the Coca-Cola company in a former life. I can tell you the first time they used advertising in sports, they used Mean Joe Green and the NFL, Who goes to the grocery store and buys Coca-Cola? totally. Right? Yeah. But they were aimed at men, and the thought was men make the money. Mm -hmm. I think that was the rationale. Let me not put words into their mouth because that was many, many decades ago. But at the end of the day, I would say that brands are waking up and recognizing that women are not only making money, but they are also deciding how that money is spent. Mm-hmm. And women want to see themselves in whatever environment. We want to be able to relate to the brand and make sure that the brand is reflecting the values that we feel. So brands are like, oh, what do I need to do? Where do I need to be? Not just position, but transition to a place that women feel comfortable. Yeah. And speaking of brands, you obviously have the WNBA and its partner organization, the NBA, and obviously all the money and focus that's going into soccer. In terms of this women's sports franchises, what do you view as the leader of the pack? 
both from a cultural standpoint, but also in terms of who's sort of doing the build in the right way. And yeah. now understanding you may be a little bit biased to your <laughs> prior uh, I'm not employer. a little bit biased, but I'm a whole lot biased. <laughs> I love the loyalty. But there are some data points that undergird my bias. Yeah. The WNBA is the longest women's professional sports league running, bar none. It started in 96 after the Olympics in Atlanta, in my home city. And it is a sister organization to the NBA. When I look at the work that's been done with the W and the support from the NBA, they by far and away lead the pack in terms of professional sports and supporting women. Having said that, you got to look at the soccer people and Megan Rapinoe and the crew with equal pay and say, holy Toledo, they protested they persisted, and they won, right? So it doesn't have to be an either-or. Both can be true, that the WNBA is doing some fantastic things, and the soccer leagues are doing some fantastic things. I would say there's still so much more work to do. There are women playing hockey. There are women playing softball. There are women playing, in Europe, football, Mm -hmm. which is soccer. So in domestic terms. So I would say that at the end of the day, There's infrastructure in leagues like the W. There's mind share and heart share changes that have already been made in women's soccer. And so there are learnings from both of those environments that can be applied more broadly. Amazing. So going back to your sort of origin story, your grandfather, you said, was a longtime and well-respected pastor. Your father was one of the first and only African-American physicians in your hometown in the state of Georgia. Growing up in Atlanta during that period, what was that like? I'm sure you get this question a lot, but I imagine it did very much help shape your worldview and perspective going forward. So I'm curious, as I said to you before we started taping, I I think the way you grow up and what you're exposed to, and to some degree your elders, if you will, have such a profound impact on a person and their career and their choices and their values. Right. I could not agree more. And boy, you've done some homework, girlfriend. (laughs) I am so impressed. So yes, my grandfather was a Baptist minister at Wheat Street Baptist Church, and he ministered there for over 50 years. I'll soon be 66 years old. So I tell people the only thing I've done consistently for 66 years is live, but he actually delivered impact for more than 50 years in the church, which is just incredible in my view. And I really didn't appreciate not only who he was, but the impact that he had and my parents had and others until I was about 40. Mm. Honestly, Aviva, I took it for granted growing up on Auburn Avenue, which is a very famous street, not only in Atlanta, but across the country and across the globe. Dr. King's church is at one end of the street, Ebenezer, and our church is in the middle, Wheat Street Baptist, and there's Big Bethel on the Mm -hmm. other end. So there are three churches. And that street, when I was growing up, was a black mecca of entrepreneurship. So there were Black-owned businesses. We lived in a segregated environment in the South. That's true in many places, but certainly south of the Mason-Dixon line. We were completely segregated. So that's where I learned about business. That's where I learned about helping people, watching my grandfather come out of the church and not just preach on Sunday, but his audio always matched his video. He was walking the streets of Auburn Avenue, sweeping the street with a broom, got to keep the place tidy, Mm -hmm. inviting everyone from the homeless 
and the helpless to those who were fully fledged and working. He mentored Dr. King. But Dr. King wasn't Dr. King. In my view, it was Marty's daddy and Yoki's daddy. The King children were my playmates. So I never thought, it's Dr. King. Right. It's like, Marty's daddy's here. Yeah, he's looking he for grandpa. Like, right. Neighbor. Yeah. Like, it was part of the family. Yeah. So when Dr. King would come and sit in our church, he was listening to my grandfather preach the cadence of his oratory, the subject matter, the scripture passages that he selected. My grandfather wrote a poem called I Am Somebody. Mm -hmm. And it talked about all of the, not all, but many of the achievements that African-Americans had made to America and American culture. We had to learn that poem as little kids. You didn't learn Black history. I don't remember Black History Month in February. There's some history behind that. I'm not even a fan of February being Black. Black history is American history. I didn't understand that till I was about 40. So the bottom line is it undergirds that experience and that exposure, helping others, self-sufficiency, mentoring others. All of that came from my family and the experience and the exposure that I had at church. Girl, I went to church like you brush your teeth. Like, it's Black <laughs> Baptist. You go every right. day. You go yep. to choir practice on Wednesday. You go to sign language class on Friday. So I learned sign language, and I would sign my grandfather's preaching mm -hmm. to those who were hearing impaired. So church was a part of life, and it continues to be a part of life. But that experience and that exposure— was overwhelming by the time I got to be 40. But as a child going through it, holding my grandfather's hand, walking down the street, it's just grandpa, and we're just going for a walk. He would do things, Aviva, like there were no iPhones, there were no computers. There was a big wooden board outside of the church, and he would hand paint 52 titles for every week, obviously, there are 52 weeks in a year, mm -hmm. and he would prepare his sermon titles at the beginning of the year, talk about planning, and he would paint the names or the titles on the board. So you could see, that's your preview of what's going to happen in this church for the next year. That's incredible. As you're speaking, it reminds me of what CEOs and chairmen of boards have to do. Right. So fast forward, clearly that had a profound impact on you. I mean, you're one of the most eloquent speakers I've ever met, but you really, you truly have an amazing way with words. And that must go back to what you were exposed to with your family as a child. So fast forward to when you started entering these leadership positions, who mentored you, apart from obviously the family piece you just described? And then now, what is your approach to mentorship? And I like that you mention faith because it is something that's important to me as well. But you read all these studies coming out of COVID, how this importance of faith has now become diminished, especially in American society. Yeah. Um, so quite a wide range of questions <laughs> there, but love your take on mentorship and the values that it instills. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for the reflection. When I speak, no matter where I am, on a podcast, on a stage, sitting in a small room of three people, I channel my grandfather. I can feel his presence when I'm speaking. And I've had people say to me, oh, I just loved what you said about X, Y, Z. And I'm thinking, what did I say? 
but I have channeled my grandfather and I can feel it when he's speaking to me. It's like he's standing right here. I had a portrait of him painted and it hangs in my sunroom in my townhouse in Atlanta. And anytime I have difficult decisions, there are five rooms on that level. Each one is decorated for a different continent that I've been to. And that particular room is North America because it's the family room where all the family pictures are. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about a hard question, I go in that room so that I can receive, to your point about faith, I can receive the message coming from the family. And the mentorship piece is a big piece of that. To whom much is given, much is required, as my grandfather would tell us from the book of Luke. The book of who? Like, why are we talking about this? But I learned it and learned it well. And so this notion of you've been given a lot. Everyone has not had the same opportunity. So you have a responsibility to share your knowledge, to give back to those who have not yet reached the level where you are or that just will not be able to ever. And so you have a responsibility. This comes out of the Black community for generations. Mm. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, often talked about the talented 10th. And those were the people in the community, in the Black community, who could go to school and who could come back and share. I'm not saying I'm part of the talented 10th. I'm saying this concept of learning and then turning around and leading by sharing that knowledge is still deeply ingrained in me from my family and from generations before, the ancestors before us. So mentorship to me is in my DNA. I must help those who come behind me. So that's one. But the corollary I've added, and this was not taught to me, but I've learned it, and I think it's really important. I was taught that there was value in every voice, value in every voice. So I have what I would term reverse mentors, because often we think of mentors as someone who is chronologically older, Mm -hmm. who has been through some experience, and they're sharing the wisdom of that exposure. Young people, we often discount and say, they don't have anything to say. Like, we know everything. Mm -hmm. We old heads. That is so wrong. In my view, as we say in sports, those are fresh legs, fresh eyes, fresh ears, and they have a point of view on whatever we're talking about. We don't just need to have a young person in our lives because we can't work the DVD or the VCR or the (laughs) iPhone or the... We need to listen to our young people. So I find myself, and I did a lot of this at the WNBA, the players were a generation younger than me, a generation and a half, actually, because a generation's about 25 and a half years. Mm. These young women were all college graduates because it's required before you're eligible to be drafted. You must have four years post-high school. So these are all college graduates or the equivalent from a European country or from some international market. I found that those women, they were citizens of the world because they played six months in the U.S. and six months on another continent. So the currency, the continent, the cultural exchange, they are so rich in what they'd been exposed to. I would often ask them questions. So this notion of reverse mentorship, where someone is literally chronologically younger than you, but has information to share and knowledge to bring to bear on a given situation— That's really important. So the mentorship for me is what I learned as a child, but also what I've gleaned as an executive and as a leader in an environment where 
if you're going to value every voice, Aviva, let's value every voice. Right. So important. We talk a lot here about one of the tenets of when uh, REA and the team founded Lion Tree is a managed meritocracy because the traditional banking model is very hierarchical where it is at especially larger banks, but certainly across the board. You come in as a junior analyst, you grind away, and all you have to do is just essentially say yes and <laughs> crunch away at Excel until the late hours of the night. And there's value in that hard work, of course, and learning. But what we at the firm try to empower in everyone, no matter what age, is that voice at the table, the asking of the questions, the having an opinions, right. the fact that you don't need to be 20 plus years into your career to research a company and start to understand the relationship set at the board level, at the CEO level, what the shareholders might be thinking. Yeah. It's something that no matter uh, what stage you're at in your development, you can have a voice. So I totally appreciate that. <laughs> well, not only that, let me say this. I agree with you 1,000%, and I applaud Lion Tree for taking that approach. I've worked in hierarchies my whole life, and I've tried to change them everywhere mm -hmm. I've ever been. I actually reject the hierarchical model and what Lion Tree, it sounds like it's really compatible with the approach that I use. The metaphor I use is a wheel yes. with the mission <laughs> at the center and the spokes, those are the people, those are the individuals, whether you're a manager, whether you're mid-level, whether you're entry-level, everybody is inextricably linked to the mission. And you need to be able to turn the wheel. And the only way to do that is if those two things are connected. So someone ultimately has to make decisions in difficult situations. But the notion of allowing everybody to be an enthusiastic contributor and bringing their full selves and their full gift to the table, that seems to be a novel idea. Why does one person have to stand at the tip of some triangle and tell everybody else what to do? It's too much pressure. This is what a lot of the CEOs during COVID were like, oh my God, I don't have all the dang answers and I don't want to have it. Okay, well, you got paid the money, so you have yes. all the answers. So let's redistribute and rethink this, right? Let's redistribute this responsibility. So the notion of having a wheel rather than a pyramid I've gotten in trouble so many companies for coming in going, this doesn't work for me. This is not how I'm going to run my group or my department. Mm -hmm. I've had managers say to me, what are you doing? We are only supposed to be increasing shareholder value. People are expendable. No, people are essential. The first thing you've got to do is listen to the people, learn what capabilities they have, and then lead. That will drive productivity, profitability, whatever it is you're trying to do. But you diminish and debase and devalue the people at your own peril. I could not agree more. Thank you for saying it so clearly and so frankly. And the reason I smiled earlier when you said the wheel is because we literally have a slide in our company <laughs> overview deck called the Lion Tree Wheel. I so separate part two of the next podcast. Okay. Yeah, I love it. So with that, tell me about your time at the WNBA. How did you get into that role? What were some of the immediate challenges? And now reflecting back, what do you feel proud of that you accomplished during your time there? Yeah, fantastic question. So thank you for that. The WNBA started as a team in Atlanta that I helped bring when I was vice mayor of the city. Reader's Digest version of the story, I was serving alongside Shirley Franklin, who was the first female mayor of Atlanta. She was working on the budget. We were both doing it. But as the executive of the city, 
she had primary responsibility. She said, can you take this meeting with the president of the W? I was like, oh, sure. She's like, you love basketball. You graduated from Duke. Those two things are not connected necessarily, but okay. I go to the meeting. Donna Orender is the president at the time. She makes a pitch for Atlanta to have a team. We talked for like an hour. I said, we'll take one. I go back to City Hall. Mayor, guess what? I took a team. She said, you what? I told you to take lunch, not a team, right? right? You took the team, figure it out. I was like, right. We put together a group of women called the Circle of Friends. And we put money in. We put our intellectual capital to the table. We brought that team to Atlanta. We found the owner. We negotiated the arena lease. Stacey Abrams was my lawyer at Mm. the time. And my dear friend, she still is. Stacey, get the arena lease done. You're the tax lawyer. Like, make that happen. And she did. So we brought the team to Atlanta. That was 2008. Fast forward to 2015. I'm invited to be a trustee at Duke University. Mm -hmm. In my trustee cohort is Adam Silver, a fellow Dukey. We're sitting at dinner at a Christmas board meeting, and we're at the president's house, and the president keeps getting up and making speeches and making announcements. Adam and I are left there to talk amongst ourselves. We start talking about the W. First, though, he was talking about the Coca-Cola company because that's where I was working. Coke had just lost the NBA contract Mm. and it had just been picked up by PepsiCo because he's given me a hard time about this. Aviva, I was like, enough of this. Let me flip the script. So I said, what's going on with the W? You don't have a president. The attendance is in the toilet. Mm -hmm. Nobody's paying attention. You can't be making any money. What is happening right now? He stopped and he said, how do you know so much? And I said, well, I got a team in Atlanta, so I understand what's happening with the W, and that's an asset that you're not levering. He said, call me Monday. You got so much to say. Let's talk about this. Aviva, that was on a Friday. Monday came. I'm back at work. I'm doing my work. Mm. I forgot to call Adam. (laughs) (laughs) He starts calling me, and to his credit, I'm like, Adam, what's up? I'm headed to a meeting. What do you need? Mm -hmm. And he's like, you were supposed to call me. Like, oh, I forgot. This is a true story. To his credit, Adam called me every day until I accepted the job to be president of the WNBA. So that's how it happened. Mm-hmm. What I saw at the W is what I've seen throughout my career, an organization that really needed to be transformed. Mm. The W was circling the drain, quite frankly. I was right. The attendance was terrible. ESPN had not given the W a dedicated day and time, which is how you train your fans. You know, come watch every Tuesday at 7. Yeah. The sponsors were not dedicated to the W. They were only at the NBA. So what I realized is that it was a huge opportunity, though. Sports is a unifier. It's the last of the meritocracies. You can either put the ball through the hoop or you can't. Mm -hmm. You can either throw the ball or you can't. You can either hit the ball or you can't. Sports is one of two international languages. The other one is music. So I said to Adam, I'm in. Let's go. That job was the most fun job I've ever had in my entire life. Is the biggest mess when I got there. But when I left, I am proud to say I'm the only president that never lost a team. No team folded onto my watch. In fact, we moved a team from San Antonio to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. We identified the market. We made the pitch to a public company. MGM bought the team. Five years later, they were national champions. 
So at the end of the day, it's a business. Everyone said to me, oh, you're just having fun in the gym with the kids. Mm. No, no, no. It's a business. It's a real business. So I am most proud of the fact that we created jobs. We didn't lose any jobs. When I was vice mayor of the city, you're always talking about economic development. That's what we were doing at the W. You're building a fan base. In the absence of a dedicated TV deal and a dedicated date and time, you got to do whatever you can do. So things like streaming on Twitter, we weren't doing that. No one was doing that before we negotiated that for the W. So at the end of the day, I am very proud that we moved a team and that team has done so well. And now the entire league is doing so well. Yeah. Now, it was a tough time. If you recall, I was there from 2016 to 2018. There was a lot of social unrest. There's always a lot of social unrest in this country, but it came to a head that summer. So many people of color, men primarily, were being beaten by police officers. Police officers were frustrated. It was tough. And I often tell folks, listen, you may not remember this, but before Colin Kaepernick and the NFL took a knee, The women of the W took a stand. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the most difficult thing that I had to navigate. Players protesting. Yeah. Not only what's happening in the world, so to speak, in the country at least, but also what the league was doing, what the league wasn't doing. Those women were fined for wearing clothes outside of their uniforms. They were wearing T-shirts over their warm-up uniforms, and they were automatically fined. Now, Aviva, I didn't find them personally, but I was president. So you're the tip of the spear, then it's your responsibility. And we made national news. Yeah. It was horrible. Blowback. Big blowback. And I'm equally proud of the fact that I reversed the league's position. I am the only president, the only league leader ever in the history of the world to reverse a position by the league. And I wear it as a badge of honor. But what I would tell you is it was that learnings from when I was a little girl, Mm -hmm. valuing every voice, standing up for those that are disenfranchised, Mm -hmm. empowering those who are powerless or voiceless. All of that came into play and back to me. I thought, I'm a daughter of the civil rights era from the cradle of the civil rights. What in the world are we doing? We made national news when we reversed the fines and stood with the players, and the players have been standing ever since. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, sports has obviously been at such an intersection, especially the last five, 10 plus years of social justice, activision, what's happening, a reflection, frankly, of the issues both on the positive and, frankly, and sadly, way more on the negative side of the underpinnings of American culture and society. As you look at the NBA now and the future, what excites you the most? What do you think are some of the challenges that the WNBA still has to overcome? But also, what excites you and where do you see the future? So the notion that women's sports is something to be invested in is really exciting. You mentioned Betsy at the top of our conversation. So when folks like Betsy come to the table with her partners and say, we're going to invest in women's sports, and you start seeing traction and accelerated momentum around what's happening with women in sports, professionally, collegiately, when I look at the name, image, and likeness legislation, now it's all over the map. Yep. For every state has a different 
rule about what to do and how to do. The NC2A is weighing in often as well. But what I would say when you see things like NIL and you see folks like Betsy and others coming to the table, I am heartened to Mm -hmm. see all of this. It's like the ecosystem is waking up to the potential that women's sports brings to the table because it's coming from everywhere. So the media numbers, if I recall correctly, from the women's tournament, the women's basketball tournament, were off the charts, just off the charts. That was not the case five years ago. It wasn't the case three years ago. But all of a sudden, boom, it's hit like a rocket. It didn't happen overnight. It happened, or I shouldn't say it didn't happen like dynamite. It happened overnight. It took time for the issues that women have faced to be pushed in the background a little bit. So the incremental progress is what people didn't see. All of a sudden, they see 92,000 people watching a volleyball game, or they see people's watching the WNBA finals because there's enthusiasm around that. So at the end of the day, I am heartened to see all of this interest and all of this enthusiasm. There are still perceptions that women are not enough or that women are not as exciting. And what I would say to those folks, you are misinformed. You have a perspective that is ill-advised. And unless and until you get good information, good data, as we would say, whether we're in banking or any other industry, sit down and shut the hell up because you don't know what you're talking about. You're talking out of your neck. I can recall being president of the W and hearing men in airports say, I could play her and I could beat her. Yes. You have no idea. That's your ego talking. So for those who are more enlightened, those who are well-informed, I applaud them and say, bring a friend, please, to a game, to an event. The number one conversion factor for people to watch the W was one game. All they needed to do was come to one game. So in business, we talk about what does it cost to get a customer in the door? How do you keep from churning them? If I could get people to come to one game, they would buy season tickets. That's amazing. It was crazy. Yeah. Because you could see the athleticism. You could see the passion that mm. these women felt. I was the president. I was standing on street corner with a bullhorn talking to anybody that would listen. Get in the arena and see what's happening, and you too will be a convert. What do you think is the role of men in all of this? Oh, they got to stand alongside us yeah. and be our allies. So many of the NBA players are doing exactly. just that. I was watching the Aces the other night. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry was sitting I front saw. row, yep. right? And Kobe, God, I miss my brother from another mother. He was a girl dad before mm-hmm. girl dad was a thing. Yep. And anytime I'd call Kobe, he'd say, yo, Lise, what you need? Mm-hmm. I got you, mm-hmm. right? Okay, Kobe, we're getting ready to have the draft. Tweet this out, you know, yep. that we're going to have a draft. Everybody should watch. So allyship is so important for the enlightened men. There are those that are just not going to get on the boat. That's like anything. You got 10% early adopters, 80% of the people under the curve to be convinced, and 10% laggards. Don't worry about the laggards. Let's go with the front end of the curve. So I think men have an opportunity to stand alongside us and be advocates, activists, and acolytes on behalf of the women who are playing sports and anything else we're trying to do. Totally agree. Yeah, it was funny. 
I kept seeing when I was watching the U.S. Open, the women's matches, Kevin Durant and his partner Rich yes. were in the front seat <laughs> drinking their, their honey deuces, cheering it on. And I was like, this is exactly what it's supposed to be. It shouldn't just always be the other way around. One thousand percent. And the younger men by and large, are standing with women because they don't know anything else to do. Some of them have a mindset from an older generation. But by and large, I hear the young man saying, are you watching this women's soccer game? Are Mm -hmm. you going to watch the W finals? Are you going to go to Vegas? And what? I love that enthusiasm. So for those men that want to sit on the couch and drink their beers and only watch NFL, God bless you. But there's a large cadre of men who are willing to walk on this journey with us. And I say, come on, the more the merrier. Totally agree. I have a four-month-old son, and I was thinking about you in this podcast, and I was like, okay, fast forward to when he is going to be sitting on the couch watching (laughs) sports. Is it instead of cracking the proverbial beer and watching the NFL? Yeah. Is it just going to be, oh, I'm watching sports. I'm watching women's sports. I'm watching men's sports. And that's just going to be part of the next generation of, frankly, consumers. It'll be interesting to see. I hope that's the case. Well, his Auntie Lisa's going to make sure because I'm going to have to be sending him all the women's sports stuff so that he has a good balance. Exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about your current chapter. Yeah. Um, So talk to us. What is Golden Glow Media and what are you doing next? You referenced you do podcasts. You obviously are on the public speaking circuit and a lot of other advisory positions. So what is Golden Glow? Golden Glow is my production company. We are a media company. In this chapter of my life, I have three buckets of activity. Hmm. So corporate boards, consultancy, and then creative projects. So Golden Glow is named for my mother. Her name is Gloria. And she has transitioned. She's no longer with us. But anytime she spoke, we called it the gospel according to Gloria, because what she told you what to do, like, that was the law. You did it. So Golden Glow, it's spelled G-L-O-W, but the G-L-O is from my mother. And what we're trying to do is not only bring out my creative, but also enlighten people with things that I have learned throughout my career. The podcast was a start, and it was an opportunity to bring my friends and those folks that I not only respect, but that I love to the table to talk about their journeys and what they learned. I learned a lot doing that, too. In addition to that, I'm writing a book about my life. Many people can Google me and find out the good stuff. You don't know the backstory. You don't know where the failures were. Aviva, I learned more from the failures than I did from winning and Mm -hmm. achieving whatever it was I was working towards. Failure's not fatal, it's feedback. It's not fatal, it's feedback. So I want to share back to the mentorship. This is one-to-many now as opposed to a one-to-one relationship. When you write a book or you share information on a podcast, it has the opportunity to go much broader than one person. So Golden Glow is that lane for me to be creative and do all the fun things that I haven't had an opportunity to do in my 40 years as an executive. Who are your dream guests? Oprah, of course. She's my big sister. Yeah, well, she's my big sister. So while I worked at Time's Up, I had the privilege of meeting her and Mm -hmm. spending time with her. She would be a dream because she's a cultural touchstone. The MIT president is a former Duke provost. Mm -hmm. So Sally Kornbluth. Those are folks that I'd love to have on so they could share their wisdom and their journey. 
To end on that, I think you're obviously role as a trustee of Duke. What are some of the areas and some of the challenges that you and the university are thinking through as it relates to that generation, this next generation? Obviously, student loan debt is consistently a huge problem that we're seemingly unable to fix. But also, there's now pushback against even going to college. There's pushback against the value of a private university. How is your, um, in terms of how you think through your role as a trustee and some of the challenges the university is facing? Thank you for that question. Oftentimes, people say to me, you're a Duke as a trustee, what in the world are you guys doing? Okay, that's a business too. We're in the education business. But I think of it as we're developing intellectual capital is really what we're doing. And so the experience that the students have on campus is probably by far and away what I think about the most. And I'm not saying it's not important to manage the budget and make sure that things are going well financially. But at the end of the day, those are formative years for those students. The people that they are in class with, the professors that they learn from, the staff that works, the administrative team and others who work at the university, it's a little city, Aviva, Mm -hmm. and how you conduct yourself there and the experience and the exposures that you have there are really important in my view. It was for me, and I think it continues today. So that's not to say things like student loan and financial aid and all that isn't important, but I'm always focused really on the students and the experience that they have. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of leading a task force to help plan for Duke's 100th anniversary, Mm. which comes up starting in January, January 9th, 2024. We were born in 1924. Interesting. I thought the university was a little bit older than that. No, we're okay. a baby. We're That's a baby. impressive. School's one of the best in the world. Thank you. It is. Yeah. I'll take that. And we'll great take sports. that. <laughs> <laughs> but Mr. Duke in 1924 yeah. offered us a $40 million indenture and said, all right, if you'll name the school after the Duke family and if you'll admit women, didn't know that until I became a trustee, I'll give you this indenture and we will build Duke University. So that opportunity to lead a task force, first of all, shout out to the president and the way he does things, Vince Price. He doesn't do top-down command control, do as you're told. It really is an inclusive environment, top to bottom and left to right. He invited trustees to participate in developing the framework for how we would celebrate the 100th anniversary. I had the privilege of leading that task force. Mm. That was two years ago. Fast forward to January 9th of 2024, we will be kicking it off. So we are thinking about what we've done well for the last 100 years and how will we do even better for the next 100 years. We're only four generations old. I mentioned it, generations 25 years, four generations. We're not like the schools in the Northeast. We're not that old. So we got money to raise. We got lots Mm -hmm. of things to do. Again, I anchor on people, as I've done throughout my entire career. It's been about transforming organizations, but how do you do that? And I think you do it through the people. I personally have been a bridge most times from what was to what can be. Mm -hmm. One of the kids told me recently, and I mean that respectfully. Yeah. Okay, you're the makeover maven. That's what we're going to call you. I was like, oh my God, only the kids would come up with something like that. I Mm. said, I'm just a bridge. I connect. They're like, no, you like make things over. How do you do that? 
looking at the people, empowering those who are not using their full voices or do not have the opportunity to reach their full potential, enlighten those who are misinformed or ill-informed, and encouraging those who are doing the work at the end of the day. So I'm always thinking about the students, undergrad and graduate students, and the experience that they're going to have because we have immersed them in this river we call Duke University. Mm -hmm. And when they come up, they are baptized blue devils, and we want to make sure that they got their heads screwed on straight. I love that. Okay, we'll end with a few rapid-fire questions. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> They're the good ones. It's our kindred cast tradition. Yeah. So, favorite book? The Bible. Favorite song? Alicia Keys, This Girl is on Fire. Nice. Favorite movie that you have seen in the last year? The Woman King. Favorite TV show? Truth Be Told. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay. And person you look up to the most that isn't family? Oh. Mm, that isn't family because my family is like. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> family is the one. If it was a historical figure, it'd mm. be Harriet Tubman. Amazing. Lisa, thank you so much. We're so excited for the next chapter, the next season of your podcast and your upcoming book. We have to have you back and talk about the wheel, talk about women's <laughs> sports, which we can go on and on, but also can't wait to see what you do next and how this next chapter unfolds. Thank oh, you so much, Lisa. Such a privilege to have been here. Appreciate thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and feel free to rate and review it wherever you're listening. Stay tuned for more KindredCast conversations from leaders in business and beyond.